All right, good morning, church. Coming to you today from the former location of Vero Christian Church. So on this property, and some of you old-timers may recognize it, is a representation of the Garden of Gethsemane, the three crosses on Golgotha, and uh, the empty tomb. Uh, two of these locations represent places where Jesus suffered and was persecuted. Now that's relevant to our message for today, as we're going to be talking about persecution. Now you know we've been in the sermon series entitled Obey Everything as Jesus Taught Us in the Great Commission and a bit of a subset of that is we're looking at the commandments of Jesus that are tucked inside of the Beatitudes so that we can obey those. And today is the eighth and final Beatitude which is good because we really have to be exposed to and practicing the first seven to consistently practice the eighth. But let's get that, uh, those verses before us this morning and from Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. It's been said you can't please all the people all of the time. And that is especially true of Christians. Uh, do you remember Aesop's fable where the farmer and his son and a donkey were on their way to the market in the local village? And as they're walking along, an onlooker criticizes them and says, why are you two walking? You've got a perfectly good donkey to ride. And so the son gets up and begins to ride the donkey. And then further down the road, another onlooker criticizes them, the son, and says, why are you, a young man, making your elderly father walk? Why you ride the donkey? And so father and son switch places and they continue on. And further down the road, another onlooker criticizes the father, said, why are you mean father making your son walk? Why you ride the donkey? So they both get up on the donkey and they're riding the donkey to market. And then another onlooker criticizes him. Why are you overloading that poor little donkey? And so the final scene in the fable has the uh, father and son carrying the donkey to the village market. You can't please all the people all the time. And if you're a people pleaser and a conflict avoider like me, then we need to learn that lesson early and reinforce it often. But that's especially true for Christians because as a Christian, we're by definition in the minority. And Jesus said, broad is the gate. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. There are many people that find that one. But narrow is the gate and the road that leads to life, and only a few people find that. So you're going to be in the minority by definition. And in any culture and society, it's always open season on the nonconformists. And the coronavirus really just makes this worse. Recently, the Federalist magazine carried an article with the title, The Coronavirus is Revealing Little Tyrants all over the world. Let me read you a, a brief paragraph from that article. Author John Danielson writes, we've now witnessed local and state governments issue decrees about what people can and cannot buy in stores, arrest parents playing with their children in public parks, yank people off public buses at random, remove basketball rims along with private property and ticket churchgoers for drive-in services. All of this, we're told, is for our own good. It goes on in the rest of the article to 
describe how much of this animus is directed toward people of faith. Now I know we're in America, this is not Syria or Nigeria or China, where there is open, state-sponsored, violent persecution of the church. I would not diminish what the persecuted church abroad is experiencing by equating it to the persecution that we might experience here in America. But having said that, the American church is not immune from persecution. What my mentor in college said, eventually all governments get around to persecuting the church. And we do not want to suffer from what sociologists call normalcy bias. That's a bias toward believing that everything's always going to be normal and the church has enjoyed the favor of the culture in the past in America, so it will enjoy that in the future. Well, I hope that's right, but things are actually trending in the wrong direction and have been for a long time. So it behooves us to prepare ourselves to obey this particular beatitude. And what is the command to obey here? You can't obey suffering. You can't obey persecution. The command to obey is to rejoice. Rejoice in the midst of persecution. And that's a tall order. How are we supposed to do that? Well, let me make three suggestions here. First of all, we can rejoice in the midst of persecution when we remember, realize that, that persecution helps identify me as a follower of Christ. Now there's kind of a subtle transition between verse 10 and verse 11 in this beatitude going from the general to the personal in particular. In verse 10, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That's general. But in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. Now the persecution comes as a result of living a life of kingdom righteousness. That is different than just living a clean moral life. A lot of people live a clean moral life and are never persecuted. But living a life pursuing kingdom righteousness means that the Spirit of Christ is within me, I'm honoring Jesus as Lord, recognizing His authority to, to judge the world. And the more a person does that, the more it tends to accentuate the darkness in the world. And the world doesn't like it. Jesus did not tell us to seek persecution. Certainly we don't. But when we seek kingdom righteousness, persecution has a way of seeking us, of finding us. And it seems that God is saying, if you're going to live for my son to the degree that you experience the same thing that he experienced, and what did he experience? Well, the cross is back here, tell that tale, you know, persecution. He said, then I'm going to reward you, and I'm going to bless you. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And I like the way the message version renders that verse. If you're abused because of Christ, count yourself fortunate. It's the Spirit of God and His glory in you that brought you to the notice of others. For instance, in the book of Acts, Peter and John, after the, the great day of Pentecost and the birth of the church, were on their way to the temple and they heal a lame man. He gets all excited and jumps up and down and he's shouting for joy and it draws the crowd. And so Peter begins preaching to that crowd. And as a result, Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish authorities. And they are warned 
do not speak in Jesus' name any longer. And, of course, Peter says, well, we must obey God rather than men. And the Jewish authorities take note. What do they know? They know that these men had been with Jesus. In, order, in other words, they're reflecting the Spirit of Christ, and it's bringing upon them persecution. So they're warned to keep quiet, and you only have to read another chapter to see what they thought of that warning. And they're preaching again, and they're rearrested along with the rest of the apostles. All the apostles are arrested. They're scourged, they're whipped, they're beaten, and warned not to preach any longer. And Luke records that they were released, and as the apostles left, having been scourged, they were rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's what we're talking about, rejoicing in the midst of persecution. Jesus' suffering and uh, death were substitutionary. He, he took those blows and he took that suffering, he took that punishment to pay the full penalty for our sin on our behalf. Now, we are the church and the church is the body of Christ. And so on occasion, we might have an opportunity to take some of the blows that were meant for Jesus. And that's in its own way is an honor. And, and by the way, some of that persecution, maybe most of it, is going to be verbal in nature, not physical. Wasn't this Jesus' experience? Most of the persecution that Jesus experienced in his public ministry was verbal. It was only toward the end that it became physical and, and, and lethal in the last hours of his life. Uh, and this is what, what Jesus taught us to expect. He said, blessed are you when people insult you. That's verbal persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. You know, all of that is verbal. And Jesus trained his disciples. He said, when, when somebody curses you, you bless them in return. When someone persecutes you, you pray for them. So even though living a life of kingdom righteousness may result in verbal harassment, what we are to return is verbal encouragement. And you see why we said you have to really be practicing the first seven Beatitudes to consistently practice this eighth one. Because unless we are poor in spirit, unless we have mourned our own sin, unless we are meek and gentle, that is our strength is under control, and we have a spirit of mercy toward others, we're not going to return a blessing for a curse. But we can rejoice when we're persecuted because it helps to identify us as a follower of Christ. And and here's a second reason. We can rejoice when we are, are persecuted because it helps to keep our focus on eternal realities. So we remember to look forward to the future and toward heaven. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So we remember, it's not all about life here. Life is short and full of trouble, the Bible says. We're going to experience some trouble. We're going to catch it from time to time. But eventually, we're going to die, and we're going to, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to live on the new earth and our new body. So knowing that helps us to deal with the unexpected and the unpleasant in the here and now. On February 22, 1980, uh, my roommates and I were watching a, a hockey game, which we normally wouldn't do, but this one was special. It was right in the middle of the Winter Olympics, and the United States team was playing the Russian team. So it was an important game, and the Russians were favored to win. They had played the United States team two weeks earlier in an exhibition game and crushed them 10-3. to 3. 
the coach of the U.S. team said, if, if our team played the Russians 10 times, 9 times out of 10, the Russians are going to win. And the Russians were the four-time gold-winning Olympic champions. They're defending Olympic champions. They're a professional team. The U.S. team is a college team. But nevertheless, uh, the game began. There are three 20-minute periods in a hockey game. And at the end of the first period, the, the score is tied 2-2. Two two. At the end of the second period, the Russians pulled ahead 3-2. But midway through the third and final period, the U.S. team scored two goals. So now they are ahead 4-3 with 10 minutes left in the period. They have to hold on to that lead for 10 minutes. And I can tell you that watching the game that night, that 10 minutes felt like 10 years. I mean, I was, we were all nervous, we were anxious. My stomach was tied up in knots. I didn't have butterflies in my stomach. I had Chinese Wuhan bats flying around in my stomach. And the clock ticked down and got down to the last minute. And the Russians had the puck and their attack was ferocious. In fact, rather than describe it to you, let me show you the last minute of that hockey game. Through the magic of television, Scott back there is going to work his magic, and we will insert that clip right here, and then we'll come back and, and make an application. Now Petrov controls. Back to Parlamov. Skating in on the left side. Into the American end. 55 seconds, but Mikhailov has the puck. Mikhailov sweeping in. Out in front. Backhander goes wide. I think Craig might have got a piece of it. Mikhailov back out to Billy Legendov. 43 seconds remaining. Morrow checked into the boards. It comes back to center ice. 38, 37 seconds left in the game. Petrov with it. The Americans on top, 4-3. To Long shot. Craig able to get a piece of it to sweep it away. 28 seconds. The crowd going insane. Carlamon shooting it into the American end again. Morrow is back there. Now Johnson, 19 seconds. Johnson over to Ramsey. Billy Legendov gets checked by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Time Magazine went on to call that the miracle on ice. But what's my point? Well, my point is this. I have watched that game since that night. I've watched it on YouTube, just like you did just now. I've seen it on documentaries, and I've even seen a movie that was based on the game. But in those subsequent viewings, I was never as anxious as I was when I watched it live or the equivalent of what was live back then. Why not? Well, the answer is obvious. Because after the fact, I know how it's going to end. So I don't have to worry about the ending. And that's a part of our faithfulness in the midst of persecution. We know how everything's going to end. And we don't have to worry about that. You know, at one point, Peter said to Jesus, he said, Lord, <laughs> We've left everything to follow you. And there's a question implied in that statement, and the question is, 
is it going to be worth it? I mean, we walked away from the family business. And not all of our families are coming along. Uh, our economic opportunities are going to be limited. Is it going to be worth it? And Jesus responded to Peter in Mark chapter 10. He says, he says, no one who's left a home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And we have to say this about Jesus. No false advertising. Jesus did not put disclaimers about persecution in the fine print of his challenges. So right up front, he says, he says, guys, you're going to catch it in this life if you follow me. But then he adds, it's going to be worth it. Anything you sacrifice, anything that's taken from you is going to be returned a hundredfold. This life and heaven and the life to come. And that a hundredfold, by the way, is a 10,000% return on investment. Where else are we going to get a deal like that? So persecutors simply have no leverage on a Christian who is not overly tied to his stuff. If we're not overly tied to our stuff, really no one has any true leverage on us. 50 years from now, when I'm dead and gone, and some of you as well, it will not matter. It's not going to matter what people said about me or thought about me or, or did to us. What will matter 50 years from now is how well we followed kingdom righteousness and fulfilled the will of God in our lives. So we rejoice when we're persecuted because it helps to magnify our focus on eternal realities. Now one more thought here. We're talking about rejoicing when we're persecuted. Now that's where the blessing comes. And the third thought is we rejoice in persecution because it puts us in good company. It puts us in good company. Jesus said, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we, we do look ahead, but we not only look ahead, we also look back. We look back at people who were faithful to God in the midst of suffering and persecution in the past. They did it. And so we can do it too. By the way, Sometimes this persecution is what you might call an inside job. Jesus said, in the same way they persecuted the prophets. So who were they? Was it the pagans that killed most of the prophets you read about in the Old Testament? No, it was actually the, the Israelites. It was those who were followers of God. In fact, at one point, Jesus said in Luke 13, 33, it would not do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. So don't get disillusioned because of where some of the pushback comes from. It might come from someone who actually wears the name Christian. I mean, if you're all in as a Christ follower, someone else who maybe sees their Christianity as a side hack or a hobby, they may be irritated by that. They may, be, they may think, what are you being all fanatical about? Why, do you, why are you suffering what you're suffering? You don't have to. You don't, you don't have to sacrifice. They may not understand. They may be the source of the pushback. Or maybe it's a, a family situation. Uh, you might be unequally yoked in your marriage. Or there may be some dynamic within your family that's causing pushback, persecution, or suffering 
and it's because you are a Christian. No one else may ever know about that, but you know, and God knows, and takes note, and rewards you. Other people in the past have paid that price and been faithful, we can too. Or it may be in our work situation. There are a lot of people, presuming you still have a job, there are a lot of people who go to work, and because they're Christians, uh, they catch it a little bit. They persevere, they'd like to walk away maybe, but they can't have dependence. No, God wants them to provide for their families. And so they push through and are faithful to the Lord. Others have done that and we can do that as well. In Acts chapter 16, we read about Paul and Silas was his traveling companion at that time and they had been preaching in the city of Philippi, which gets them arrested. And uh, they're scourged and put in the stocks and in the dungeon of the prison. And Luke records, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. I guess so. And somebody is rejoicing in the midst of suffering and persecution that tends to get people's attention. I don't know what they were singing. I don't think they were singing gloom, despair, and agony on me. Whoa! I think they were singing something more like what we would call the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They were praising God and praying to Him. And of course, God caused an earthquake to come and it, it shook the foundations of the prison and they were released from their stocks and the prison doors fly open. The prison guard sees the doors open. He's about to kill himself because he's responsible for escaped prisoners and Paul calls out, don't, don't kill yourself, we're all still here. And the, the prison guard says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And, and spoke the word of God to them. And that, that Philippian jailer and his whole household were baptized in that same hour of the night. And Luke records that they rejoiced. They rejoiced because now they have salvation. So Paul and Silas are rejoicing in their suffering. And as a result, now the Philippian jailer gets to rejoice, even though he's probably going to catch it too as a Christian. But now he's rejoicing because he has an eternal perspective and he has salvation. Uh, we stand alongside people like Paul and Silas, who have been faithful to God in the midst of persecution. They did it, and so can we. I was recently reading the account of a man named Armando Valadares. Armando, Armando Valadares was a journalist in the 1960s in Cuba, and he was in prison. He's a political prisoner because uh, he was critical of communism and the revolution. Fidel Castro put him in prison. And it was in that prison that Valadares converted to Christianity. And he says the reason why he converted, what really got to him to open up to the message of the gospel was the rejoicing of the Christian prisoners in the jails. You see, at that time, there were people in jails in Cuba they were there just because they were Christians. Not in spite of their Christianity, but because of their Christianity. And I know, normalcy bias, that could never happen here. And I hope that's right, but it happened there in Cuba. But even those, those Christians were in prison, they rejoiced. And there were executions in those prisons almost every night. And Valadere says, when they would come and take people away to execute them, everybody was shouting and resisting. That was a normal reaction. But when they came for the Christians, the Christians were shouting too. But what the Christians shouted was, 
Long live King Jesus. All the way out of the prison and out to the yard where they were to be executed. Long live King Jesus. And Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Valadere says, when he heard that, he said, hey, there's something different about these people. His heart was open to the gospel, and he became a follower of Christ. We stand alongside people like that, Armando Valadares. They were faithful, and we can be faithful too, and even rejoice in the midst of our suffering. So when we live these Beatitudes, it changes us. God changes us. The Spirit uses always the Word of God and Christ to change us. And what persecution does is help to demonstrate that that change is not superficial. It's more than skin deep. And a little bit of suffering can't scrape it away. And when we live the Beatitudes, we receive a blessing. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. That means happy are you, joyful are you. For all of these Beatitudes, we receive a blessing. But when we live them, we also become a blessing. We are a blessing, bringing joy and peace and happiness, the abundant life and salvation to the world. So God bless you, Vero Christian Church.